Hi, we're Eleanor and Carrie. We're the hosts of the Good Robot Podcast, and join us as we ask the experts: What is good technology? Is it even possible? And what does feminism have to bring to this conversation? If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website, where we've got a full transcript of the episode and a specially curated reading list with work by or picked by our experts. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Rosie Braidotti, one of the leading philosophers of our time and a distinguished professor at Utrecht University. Her pioneering theory of posthumanism is a way of thinking that she believes is key to understanding the posthuman condition within which we all exist. Thinking with posthumanism is a way of working through the contradictions of the fourth industrial age, surrounded and embroiled as we are with incredible life changing technologies, but plagued by the huge costs and damages of this era, which has resulted in the sixth great extinction. With entire species and ecologies disappearing before our eyes, her radical critique of centering the human in everything that we do and build is grounded in feminist and continental philosophy. In her latest book, Posthuman Knowledge, she argues that the human was never a neutral category, but one always linked to power and privilege. Hence, we must attend to the sexualized and racialized others that were excluded from humanity. We're releasing this conversation in two parts. In this first part, Braidotti explains how to embrace the crises and possibilities of advanced capitalism, what it means for NASA to choose Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man as one of its logos, and why colonizing outer space risks repeating the worst features of terrestrial capitalism. Look out for the bonus episode for the second half of this interview, which will be released very soon. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, so it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Can you tell us about yourself, what you do, and what brings you to the topic of gender and technology? Uh, hello, I'm Rosie Braidotti uh, from Utrecht University, where I've taught for many years, setting up the Women's Studies and then Gender Studies program, and then concentrating more on issues of feminist theory in relationship to techno bodies and the coming of very invasive, pervasive technologies. As a continental philosopher, I'm interested on how they constitute subjectivity and how they um, allow us or not uh, to develop relational ethics. So I'm interested in human, non-human, post-human, ethical, political implications of these technologies. Fantastic. So our podcast is called The Good Robot, and we'd like to ask you our billion-dollar question. What is good technology? Is it even possible? And how do we work towards it? Of course, it's possible, and I am very much a technophilic person. I, I love technologies, and I think there has been a long tradition in both feminism and in uh, sort of traditional cultures of women and other marginal people, whereby the technology has proved useful and liberatory. I mean, there is never a moment where uh, we humanoids didn't use sticks and stones and uh, other devices to get by. <clears throat> Animals do it too, by the way. So I, I think the distinction, um, technology, culture, uh, human nature needs to be revised. And there's been movements in the last 40, 50 years saying we have to redefine the human and human relationship with technology as the link. 
the political culture of the left, of which feminism in Europe is a very major component, has a difficult relationship to technologies and to robots. Um, the Luddite uh, rebellions way back are symptomatic of this. Uh, automation and robotics are seen as potentially in a, you know, hostile to human labor. And there is a connection between the sexualized, um, uh, racialized, uh, naturalized others, women, LBGT people, indigenous, black, colonized people, uh, and the non-human world, um, uh, a connection between them and technology as an instrument um, that potentially can make their fate worse, even worse. So the big issue is good robots need to confront the fact that humans are not all humans in the same way, to the same extent, and that there are really enormous differences of power and entitlement in terms of being humans, which make a lot of humans dehumanize or not fully human. And consequently, uh, they have a very ambivalent relationship to the robot. On the one hand, the robot is also not human, so it can be a great friend. And you get that in all the traditional feminist um, science fiction, in Afrofuturism, whether the robot is another non-human body and ally. And on the other hand, completely the opposite, you get this idea that this is a piece of instrumental reason, of scientific rationality, an instrument to advance capitalism and consequently an enemy. And I think the tension between the two, um, sort of the alliance of the non-humans and the fear of the dehumanized humans towards technology, that is structural in certainly feminist cultures, anti-racist cultures, anti-fascist cultures. So it's a creative tension with the left historically taking a position against the technology. And I see contemporary feminism as correcting that and, and, and trying to move a step further. So yes, good robots are possible, but some negotiations are necessary. So feminism then has this conflicted relationship with technology, but we hear a lot about how technology is being built to reconstruct old ideas about gender. And I think that in your work and in the conversations that we've had, you've pushed that a bit further to say that it's reconstructing really old ideas about gender, kind of pre-suffragette times. Can you expand on that? It's a complex set of premises, because if you're looking at the social history of technologies, there are really clear historical moments where the social imaginary narrates the technologies in very different uh, terms. In, in my early books on this, I'm thinking Metamorphosis way back in, at the times of cyber feminism, uh, end of the 90s. Um, uh, you see clearly in, in the classic films like Metropolis, which has been analyzed over and over again, the good robot Maria leading the revolution of and also threatening the future at the same time, this, this structural ambivalence. But in modernity, it is clear that technology is sexualized, it's genderized, and the robot is female. The robot is the car, um, look at the, 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 the train. Uh, it's all, which are all, all symbols of high modernity. There would be no Russian revolution without train. There will be no Second World War and deportation of millions of people without trains. There is a whole genderization of the social imaginary of technology in high modernity that is very different from what we have today. In high modernity, the technological other is another. It is, it is sexualized as other. It is, it is dichotomized as other. It is threatening and attractive as other. And the gender system is in full deployment. 
And there, the feminine is both some sort of future for humanity and some excessive element that escapes scientific reason. Uh, now, we are not in that phase at all. I think, I think what is typical of advanced postmodernity or contemporary capitalism, if you prefer, is that technologies have really come a lot closer um, to us. They are invasive, immersive, all-pervasive technologies. Look at us today. We have them in our ears, in our eyes. With the, they're connecting us. You cannot really mark a point of dialectical demarcation between the human and the technological other. It's far more rhizomatic. Uh, advanced capitalism is post-binary. It, it, is, it is schizophrenic, as Deleuze and Guattari wrote way back in 1972. And that all-pervasive kind of non-dialectical relationship to technologies makes them a little bit more complicated uh, to deal with. And because then, uh, you know, where, where are the points uh, of the markations and, and uh, what happens to gender in a system like this? And I think the idea that uh, already we were talking about this a couple, a couple of decades ago, that advanced capitalism undoes gender, that it, it multiplies it over a thousand plateaus of little genders, little sexes. And again, I'm quoting Deleuze Guattari, but I'm also quoting uh, Deleuzean feminism, new materialist feminism, all of my buddies in posthuman feminism. And we are well beyond the two genders. This is a multiplication of genders across the board. Um, uh, all because the function of technology, advanced technology, the digital, the electronic, is to re define, re-territorialize the human. Uh, we get multiplied over a thousand <laughs> plateaus of possible sexuation uh, and certainly genderization. So this is the enormous disruptive revolutionary potential of technologies and people that do biohacking or trans feminism or, or gaga feminism, as Albestam calls it, explore and exploit the liberatory potential of this type of immersive technology that explodes the gender system. Um, and that's an incredible potential, an incredible, exciting prospect. The problem is that this more transgressive, I would call them almost revolutionary, multiplication of genders does not happen in a vacuum. It happens in a world where the gender system is a binary, is a massive instrument of governance. And advanced capitalism is a totally double discourse on this because they know that dividing humanity into two genders makes it really governable. I mean, you can divide and conquer uh, forever. So there is a complete contradiction built in. And where you see this very clearly for me is in the transhumanist project of Elon Musk that is, you know, beyond the human with his exploration of, Ma of Mars with SpaceX and all the private enterprises investing billions for NASA going to outer space. But when they go to outer space, which we plan to be doing by 2026, with the first human colony on the moon, who are we going to send out there? A man and a woman. So there are a reinscription of the classical gender system at the back of a massive explosion and multiplication of genders and sexes. And I think that tension is for me a defining feature of this posthuman convergence, which is made of incredible paradoxes, which we, critical thinker, feminist, anti-racist people, need to analyze very lucidly and absolutely make interventions upon them because we cannot have new 
colonization of outer space repeating the worst features of terrestrial capitalism. That would be uh, a terrestrial patriarchy replicating itself on outer space. That's a bad science fiction novel. We can write better ones. We have written better ones in feminism, actually. Sometimes things in the world of technology are complicated and need careful explaining. Sometimes they just need a little hard truth. I don't think anyone is going to buy a banana with crypto at any point in the foreseeable future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's What Next TBD, your clear-eyed guide to technology, power, and the future. Friday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. We have indeed. My PhD was in science fiction written by women. And people are still like... Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> what's that? For futurism, the, the vision of the future that we get, the incredible imaginatory, imaginative strength of the so-called oppressed. I mean, the creative potentials of those who have never been considered fully human is extraordinary. It's quite true that the center self-replicates and all the energies is on the margin. Totally true. So we've gone beyond then the human, and yet we are still vested in the perfect human, this idealized Vitruvian man, which you have on the front cover of your book, The Post-Human. So what has Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian man then got to do with why technology can be harmful to particular groups? You know, why why technology is still is all vested in these ideas and how that affects particular groups and individuals? So you know that that image of the Vitruvian man has um, been uh, designed in the patch of the astronauts for the NASA programs, and it is uh, sewed upon their astronaut suits. It is the image, the image of humanity in outer space. And the Renaissance ideal of Da Vinci, perfect, the perfect proportion is the architecture goal, the mean. It's it's really almost a, a kind of a, a synopsis of humanism. And it is also beautiful. There's no question of that. But it is a very, very uh, specific, culture-specific, time-specific, very Eurocentric, masculinist, ableist image of the human. And it, it excludes enormous kind of categories of humans. My critique of humanism has been pretty standard in the in, in sense of, of, of feminism and particularly post-structuralist feminism that the human is a term that indexes um, exclusions and the humanism is in fact a hierarchical system that defines a man, the human, in terms of all those that don't make it, whether they are the sexualized, racialized or naturalized others, as I said before. So it is a very exclusionary image and it is at the center of the transhumanist project because I think that the contemporary version of dominant uh, posthumanism is transhumanism, which is the, the the ethos of advanced capitalism, at the center of that ambiguity that I've already been talking about. In the sense that the transhumanist, I'm thinking Nick Bostrom in in Oxford, but we can think Elon Musk, we can think Silicon Valley actually as a whole. The ethos is human enhancement for a very good purpose. And you know, we are enhancing the humans so that we can continue to grow and evolve and keep up with the very advanced technologies which we have developed. But because of machine self-learning, AI, and smart objects of all kind, the computational systems are faster than our, our old neurosystem. So some repair job is necessary. And we have human intelligence and super intelligence and all of these grandiose projects. And, and again, some evolutionary 
logic and process is clearly ongoing. There is anybody who has attempted to play uh, a computer game with a four-year-old will know that this is a different species. And by the time I figure out the rules, they've already played the entire championship. So this acceleration that Michel Serre analyzes very cleverly in, in Thumbelina, Petit Pousset, whereby the, the, the brains of the younger generation are being wired differently, which also gives us, you know, different pathologies, uh, an increase in some form of dyslexia, a, a collapse of grammar <laughs> and punctuation and spelling. I mean, the evolution is full of pitfalls and, and, and challenges, but an evolution is ongoing. So I don't see why we need, you know, transhumanist enhancement projects to accelerate it even further. And there is a, a part of me as a female of the species, as a gay woman, as, as a radical, as, as a socialist, that is slightly concerned, saying, okay, who, who decides who gets to be enhanced uh, through what means and for what purpose? But the, the, the transhumanists have both a pro-humanist angle. They are normatively humanist. They want to improve and protect the human. But analytically, they're totally post-anthropocentric. They know that the machines are faster. John Lovelock, in the beautiful book he wrote for his 100th birthday called The Nova Scene, says it quite clearly. The future of the humans is the cyborg and the robots. May they be kind to us. Um, because the only chance that we have is that they will take pity, take pity upon us. My concern is not, I mean, that's a little bit of a narrative that Lovelock has there, a bit of science fiction, but what is missing from his account, apart from the fact that, the, that all the ex- people that would be excluded from it, but what is fundamentally missing is all the environmental element. Um, so what, what have we got here? We have Elon Musk going on Mars with a, a whole transhumanist program. And back on Earth, we have a planet that is depleted by the climate change. Um, and Elon Musk uh, is very ruthless when he talks about planet Earth. Uh, he says there are no resources there. The planet is exhausted. It is my responsibility for the future generations to go and get resources from outer space. And we all know that outer space is about mining. It's about bringing down resources. There is a law that President Trump passed and John Biden confirmed allowing uh, mining in intergalactic other planets. It's a new international law that would take resources from outer space. This is not science fiction. It's advanced capitalism going outside the boundaries of our planet. And so when I look at things like this, my concern is, but what about this planet? Is there a commitment to the sustainability of planet Earth and the Earthlings? Or are you transhumanists already saying, old model, we go out for the new model? There is here a logic of sacrifice that worries me. So, okay, you know, the evolution, fine, the good robots, but can we look after what we've got here? And I can imagine a new political party coming out, the Earthlings, saying we want to take care of this particular planet and, and stop mining it to death, taking care, uh, planetary care. And, and I can also imagine, which Susie Orbach already wrote about it, a party of people who say, I want to be this body. And it's an old debate in cyber feminism, uh, whether it is uh, proud to be flesh or whether it is uh, wanting to be cyborg. Um, uh, and I think that proud to be just uh, um, a human in some ways um, may become an issue here. Uh, but this would be a posthumanist type of defense 
uh, of the human against a dominant ideology of transhumanism that worries me, if that distinction is clear. Yes, there's something about the human as it stands and as it continues to be reproduced in industry, in you know, when we're creating new technologies, that pushes forward this idea that we have always been human, that there is something about our human essence that needs to be protected. But yet you have people like Jane Bennett, um, the feminist posthumanists, who emphasize the agency of non-human uh, matter and how those processes are implicated in the way that we are human. You know, there's N. Catherine Hales talking about all the non-human cognizers that allow for human cognition. So then how can we understand what it means to be an autonomous subject, you know, this thing that the transhumanists are so obsessed with, protecting human autonomy, when, for example, now there are humans working so closely in tandem with, with, uh, with AI, like customer service agents, working with chatbots? Where is human autonomy there? And do we really need to be thinking in terms of, of autonomy? I feel like we've moved beyond that in feminism. We've gone to this relational ethics. Why should we go back there? Great question. And you named um, wonderful feminist scholars and great scholars. Bennett Hale's fantastic. And we could throw in Haraway saying there's a whole uh, tradition of um, posthuman feminism where Indeed, the notion of autonomy is, shall we say, repurposed. The reason why I can't say reject is that that notion of autonomy based on Kantian principles of transcendental rationality, consciousness, uh, with an inbuilt moral compass, uh, the triad, uh, moral goodness, reason, beauty, which is, which is the enlightenment in a nutshell, which is a noble, glorious ideal, um, which, however, needs to look at carefully in terms both of the inclusion and exclusion, as I said before, and in terms of what it has produced historically. It needs to be assessed in the light of what the Enlightenment has made possible and not. All of that, I think, uh, uh, supports an idea of autonomy that feminism has always criticized, but it has also been mixed. There is a, a, a cultural divide here. There is an, an Anglo-American block, really, that takes autonomy as a distinctive feature of liberal individualism and takes liberal individualism as the key to emancipation and freedom, from John Stuart Mill running through to Gloria Steinem to Hillary Clinton. Glorious, all of that. But it is not the tradition that I feel particularly at home with, because that liberal individualism model and a Kantian idea of citizenship is incredibly exclusionary. Um, it left women out from the first French Revolution. Um, I think women got citizenship after the Second World War, really. It leaves... Um, LGBT people in the lurch, and it leaves black colonized indigenous people out. I think that the most cogent critiques of autonomy and liberal individualism do come from the sexualized, racialized others. Um, I'm, at the moment, I'm reading a great deal of indigenous theories because of my Australian life as well. And I think it's an indigenous philosophy because they're very ancient philosophies of the earth that you see the primacy of relation, the relational ethics element that you already mentioned, which is so central to the philosophies that I do as a continental philosopher. And we have relational theories, you know, we have perspectives and, and multi-natural uh, theories um, uh, from, from Leibniz, Spinoza, 
theories where it's multi-perspective and it's not one Cartesian then Kantian individual with a transcendent reason that governs uh, cognition, moral behavior, and aesthetic perception. No, it is a f- more distributed relational entity in contact with a myriad of others. I think Leibniz in particular, reread read with the Deleuze book, wonderful book called The Fold, that is very, very compatible with uh, indigenous perspectives where the perspective is everything. I'm thinking Vivero de Castro, Bird Rose, I'm thinking Kim Tolbert, uh, et cetera, et cetera, a whole generation of thinkers where everything is in the relation. The problem is in our worldview, uh, we have opposed the Western autonomous individual, the colonizer, to these other systems which have been completely sidelined as animistic, primitive, pre-rational, non-scientific. There's been a dismissal of all of this, which is coming back to haunt us now as the planet hits a terminal climate crisis. And to take the example of Australia, Aborigines have lived in that country for 70,000 years and they kept it going while it's been there for 200 bits and, and, and it's depleted. The resources are depleted. So who is here? and the, the wise uh, uh, subject of knowledge and who is being ignorant and arrogant about the sustainability of the earth. And I'm so glad you brought up Kim Tolbert and indigenous ways of knowing because like Kim, you know, Gregory Cajete have shown that we need to look also at indigenous epistemologies when we answer these questions of what do ethical engagements with non-humans look like? Well, well, we are written into social constructivism. I mean, uh, modern feminism uh, really starts with one is not born, one becomes a woman, which we can start open conversation. But it was fundamental. I mean, when Beauvoir did that, she immediately uh, stopped the naturalization of inequalities. Nature is a term that absolutely justifies inequality. So it's a very suspicious term. And that has been an incredibly important tradition and one that we need to continue to uphold. But, but so I'm, I'm very critical of social constructivism. I do not think it is gender that creates sex. I think that is absolutely not true, you know, scientifically um, or socially. We can have endless seminars about this. Um, but the crucial thing is to allow, alongside this dominant, mostly Anglo-American tradition, a different tradition that is more materialist, more neo-naturalist, but the nature in question is a nature culture. Even more, it's nature culture media. Uh, It's a set of posthuman heterogeneous alliances that allow us to be the subject that we are today, embodied, but the body is, of course, a social construct as well as a chunk of meat with its own genetic memory, embedded in social environments which rely on an ecology, an environment which is never taken into account, a relational, and the relation is to human and non-humans, and then non-humans are both organic, animal plants, and uh, technological algorithms, codes, networks. Thinking all of that, which I call Zoe geotechno subjects, is a bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a headache. But, you know, we need to raise to the complexity of what we have made possible historically. We cannot think in terms that are so antiquated in relation to what we have become. Unless we think the way we live, we have a problem, a serious problem. So my my quarrel with philosophy is, is it possible that every time we think about the subject, we step back for a few minutes to the 18th century, and then we come back to the 21st and we carry on? 
Can we not be synchronized with our complexities? And I would say that's a task for the humanities to develop the language, the terminology to deal with this complexity within the grammatical structures that we've inherited from the past. <clears throat> grammar is quite a cage. And Lacan used to say, for as long as you believe in grammar, you believe in God and in a metaphysical system that functions by dualistic oppositions. We, we are back to you know, uh, the hierarchies of being. So can we evolve conceptually instead of making the humanities a museum of old ideas and, uh, about a man that is lovely, but, you know, we, we don't resemble that Vitruvian by any standards. It's a long time ago, and a lot has happened since. So a more kind of, yeah, creative idea of, of what we're capable of becoming, I think. Um, very optimistic and very kind of affirmative, but keeping in mind some critical lines, I would say. Thanks for listening. And for the second half of this conversation, look out for the bonus episode. This episode was made possible thanks to our generous funder, Christina Gould. It was written and produced by Dr. Eleanor Drage and Dr. Kerry Mahra and edited by Laura Zamulianita.